Before I begin, I wanted to um, say something about our speaker on Wednesday, uh, Andrew Redleaf. Uh, first of all, uh, he accepted our invitation to go to lunch with some of you. So um, I want to arrange an event uh, actually at one of the college's uh, cafeteria. And I haven't figured out. Maybe one of you has a suggestion. Uh, especially if we, we can get a – see, what college – he was here – we did it in his college, because he graduated from Yale. Uh, I've forgotten which one that was. It had a nice room upstairs. Uh, so maybe I'll try to uh, get that one again. Of course, he said he doesn't particularly care. Maybe I should take him to another one. <laughs> maybe – yeah, if you can suggest a college uh, uh, which has a nice room for – and, and then it will be both – I'll come and Redleaf will come. Uh, and uh, uh, so that's, that's this Wednesday. And uh, so I, what I'm going to do is email you the detail. If, if you could email me if you're interested in coming, uh, and so we can have a, a good sized group and a discussion. Okay. Uh, so I, I just wanted to say a little bit about Redleaf. Uh, he. Uh, Founded White Box Advisors uh, in 2000, so that's eight years ago, uh, and it is now up to 1.8 billion assets under management. So, uh, assets under management is how much money he's drawn in from investors. So he's doing quite well, uh, and uh, he has some uh, celebrity status among hedge fund managers. Uh, Notably, I put on the website um, for that for March 5th under our class syllabus uh, a New York Times article about him entitled "Curiosity Has Its Merits." Uh, I guess it struck the author of that article that uh, uh, Redleaf is just a very guy who's very curious about a lot of things. He wants to know how things work and why things are happening, uh, and uh, that might be a natural impulse. Uh, and some people have that more than others. It's probably a good impulse to have if you're going into investment. But of course, he turns it into uh, productive purpose. Uh, and so th there are a couple examples from that article. One is that uh, there's a literature in finance about options and stock price performance, uh, which goes back 10 years, uh, that shows that something is not quite right with. Uh, the way companies issue options. Uh, so let me, let me remind you what happens. What's happening increasingly is that employees, uh, or top executive employees at least, in companies are rewarded as part of their compensation with options on the value of the stock of the company they work for. So you work for XYZ Corporation. The share is trading at $10 a share. They would give you uh, at the money or out of the money options, say options to buy the stock at $11 a share. All right, that's $1 more than it costs now in the market. So those options are worthless unless the price of the stock goes up. And so that's supposed to incentivize you as a manager to get the stock price up. Uh, and then you make money if the price of the stock rises above, in that case, $11 a share. 
So that, all that is fine. It sounds good that managers should be given options because it will incentivize them to work for the benefit of the corporation. The problem is that's been revealed in finance literature is that uh, there's an uncanny tendency for the stock price to go up after the company awards large quantities of options to its executives. Does that sound suspicious? I mean, you could say, well, that means the options are really working well because it really motivated the managers and they did something and made the company worth more. But if it suddenly goes up right after they're issued, you kind of suspect that something is, something is screwy here. And so there's, there's been a number of articles that documented that stock prices tend to jump shortly after options are issued to managers. And so um, the immediate suspicion that this raised, and I think it's more than a suspicion, is that companies will time announcement of good news until after they issue the options, right? They're, the managers of the companies are kind of a group helping each other, right? Let's, let's award options to each other uh, and then after we award them, we'll announce the good news and the stock price will go up and you guys will get money. Okay. Uh, there's a tax incentive to do that. If they awarded uh, options that were in the money, that means already exercisable at profit, uh, then they would be subject to a tax liability immediately. Uh, so they don't want to do that. So they want to issue them out of the money and then announce the news that brings them in the money. Uh, and so it's been proven that companies do that. More recently, there was, a, uh, and I was just reading about this in the, in the Times, there was an article um, by um, Eric Lee that uh, showed that it's not just announcement of news that does it. It's also that companies must be backdating options because Lee showed that some of the price jumps that occur after the options are issued couldn't possibly have been manipulated by the company's news announcements. It must have been that they somehow knew on the issuance date that the stock price was going to go up. But he said they couldn't possibly know that uh, in these general circumstances. So Lee concluded that companies were fraudulently backdating options. He concluded this on the basis of a statistical test. You see what I'm saying? If stock price options, if stock options tend to be issued as announced by the company later, uh, on just before stock prices go up, there's no way that that can be right because nobody can know exactly when the stock price is going to go up. So they must have been lying about the date that they issued the options. Okay, so that uh, you understand that issue about backdating. About it was a this article by Eric Lee was uh, um, something of a scandal, and it led then to regulatory authorities. Uh, uh, his name is Eric Lee. Regulatory authorities then realized that something, so there's some fraud going on. Not most corporations. I think Lee identified a small number, but definitely some of them that were lying about the day. They, they would, you know what I'm saying? They would announce uh, in December that we issued back in uh, August these options to our executives. Funny thing, the uh, uh, stock price soared, right? Between August and December, when they announce it, so the regulatory authorities are start. We're starting to look into this. That's fraud to backdate options. So what does Andrew Redleaf do? He decided to do his own study, parallel to Eric Lee's, and much more uh, pervasive. 
So he was going after himself, finding out all the companies that were backdating options, trying to beat the SEC and the regulatory authorities to the conclusion. And then what did he do? He, he shorted the stocks or whatever to benefit. Once they're investigated, their stock prices and their bond prices are going to fall. So he, he did the <laughs> he found out who they were using similar methods to Lee's and, uh, and profited from it. Is that a good thing? Well, that's the way Wall Street works, or at least attentive. Some people say markets are efficient and every, the stock prices incorporate all information. Well, but I don't think they are efficient. And, and, and this is an example, a red leaf example. You know, in a sense, uh, efficient markets would require that everybody, every analyst rushes out and completes Eric Lee's study. Uh, but they don't. I don't know. It's just it's, there isn't enough uh, initiative in the, in the world. To, not many people do it. So Redleaf was able to figure out who was going to get hit for the uh, backdating scandal before, uh, before other people did. And then that was an advantage. I'll give another example of Redleaf's uh, success. General Motors, uh, as you know, is an auto producer. Uh, in the United States, and it hasn't been doing well, uh, as you may have heard, uh, as is the general auto industry in this country. It's, it's suffering under competition from abroad. Uh, and so Andrew Redleaf bought General Motors bonds, which are selling at a discount because people worry that General Motors won't be able to pay on them. Uh, and then he asked to speak to the General Motors uh, management. And he went there and he made a, a, a plea that General Motors should cut its dividend that it pays to stockholders, uh, which is a reasonable thing to do. If they're, if they're failing, they should cut their dividend. But companies are reluctant to do that because it looks bad. And so uh, they hold off for a long time not cutting. But Redleaf went in and said, you should really do it. And he convinced them, apparently, and they cut their dividend. Well, after that, the bond price went up. Because uh, people th saw that as a sign that the company was tightening its belt and, and you know, doing things right to have money to pay off the bondholders. So it was self-interested, I suppose. Maybe you can ask him about this. But it was also what we call shareholder activism or investor activism, that he was getting involved in changing the way corporations do business. So uh, uh, those are just a couple of examples of, of Redleaf uh, and what he does. Uh, so I admire him. I think he has, uh, it's his curiosity and uh, diligence that he finds uh, investment opportunities. And he's another example that markets are really not efficient. Uh, they're efficient enough that you have to work hard <laughs> to uh, find opportunities, but, but not, uh, not perfectly. Okay, so today I want to talk about banking. And uh, this, this ties in somewhat to my previous lecture, which was on real estate, because banks are major real estate lenders uh, and investors in real estate securities. And we're going through a subprime crisis right now, which is a banking crisis as well. Uh, and so I will talk a little bit about, um, about what we, um, what we uh, discussed last time. Uh, but anyway, I wanted to start out with uh, the most fundamental um, thing is um, what are banks? <laughs> okay, what is a bank? Uh, and uh, so uh, 
Historically, money lenders of one sort or another go back uh, to who knows how far back, thousands of years. So you might say banks existed in ancient times. But uh, the history of banking often goes back only uh, a matter of hundreds of years. Uh, and one of the stories that uh, uh, is often told is the goldsmith banker's story that goes back, uh, I don't know how many hundred years. Goldsmiths are people who uh, work in gold. They make jewelry and gold, uh, silverware, goldware and uh, pot, uh, whatever, coffee urns. Uh, and uh, uh, they would store gold and they would have a, a safe or some sort of safekeeping. And so a lot of people would uh, ask them, since they had a safekeeping for gold, could you put my gold in your safe? Uh, and the goldsmith uh, would accept that as part of a, uh, an extension of the business as a goldsmith. Uh, and uh, especially if the, if the gold was in the form of coins and people didn't care uh, whether they got the same coins back, the goldsmith then discovered all this gold sitting in my safe uh, is just sitting there. Why don't I lend some of it out? Okay, and I can earn interest on, on the loan and make money. Uh, and meanwhile, when people, uh, when people come back to ask for their gold, as long as they're willing to take other gold, that's apparently why what they, they don't care whether it's the same coins, I'll have enough still in my safe so that I can pay them off. Okay, and so it, it kind of just happened. Uh, it was, it, you know, it would, it would happen to anyone who was a goldsmith. Because it's just the logical extension of the business. Some customers want to use your safe because safes are hard and expensive to get, uh, and and some and then you've got all this gold, so you might as well lend it out. So it started out that way as uh, what we call fractional reserves, and that is the goldsmith only had a fraction of the gold that was. In, uh, owed by, by the goldsmith. So uh, the goldsmith might also write notes uh, promising so much gold and not pr promising the return of any particular item of gold. And so the goldsmith would sign his name on it saying, I promise to give so many ounces of gold. And in some cases, they were bearer notes. That means that the goldsmith would uh, pay it to the bearer. In other cases, they would have the name of the person on them. But bearer notes became very important. So the goldsmith in your town writes out a note saying, I will pay to the bearer of this note so much gold. Uh, and then the bearer could be anyone. Uh, you still have to hide the note <laughs> for, from theft, but at least you don't have to hide a whole bunch of gold from theft. And so that's how, how paper money got started as bearer notes, because if you had gold with the goldsmith, you could uh, spend the note, at least within the town that you live in, where, where the goldsmith was known and had a reputation. Uh, and so that's the whole uh, idea of how banking got started. Um, so, uh, and how paper money got started, in, at least in the West. Uh, there's a different history in China. Uh, so, okay, so there are different kinds of banks. 
uh, today. I'm going to jump to modern times. And the most important kind is called commercial bank. Okay? And a commercial bank, like a goldsmith banker, accepts deposits. That's critical. That means you can put money in the bank uh, and it makes loans. Okay, very simple. Uh, and so the, the, it pays interest on the deposit and it collects interest on the loans and it charges a higher interest on the loan than they pay on the deposit. And the difference is their profit, and that's how they make money. Uh, so that's uh, and uh, in addition to commercial banks, um, we uh, well I'm not going to talk about investment banks here. In this, that's another lecture. Investment banks are very different in that a pure investment bank does not accept deposits. Uh, and it doesn't make loans. It, it's an underwriter for securities. So uh, I'm not talking about investment banks in this. Uh, like I'm talking about commercial banks, which accept deposits from depositors. And traditionally, commercial banks uh, did not deal with the general public. Uh, they were for wealthy people and business people. And the traditional commercial bank would accept deposits from businesses. And make loans to businesses, uh, and that's the. Uh, but the other uh, kinds of depository institution that have developed are called thrifts, uh, and it really started from a movement um, uh, in the United Kingdom. That's the way I do the history. It may have some other version if you look further, but in the United Kingdom, there was a movement uh, in the early 19th century. To set up uh, saving banks, which were for uh, this was an effort to democratize finance, as I would put it, for for ordinary people to have the opportunity to make small deposits. It used to be that people would hide money in their house, uh, and it would frequently get stolen, uh, and it didn't earn any interest. And so, saving there was a savings bank movement, which uh, spread from the U.S. From the UK to the US in the 19th century. Uh, and it was a philanthropic movement. Uh, in other words, wealthy people, in an effort to alleviate penury, would create a saving bank. So, for example, here in New Haven, we had one created called the New Haven Saving Bank, uh, which lasted for over 100 years and it was taken over and it's now called Alliance Bank. It's no longer a saving bank. Uh, but uh, a lot of these savings banks tend to be very old institutions that, um, um, that go back to the 19th century. And uh, another example is the Saving and Loan Association. Uh, this is also, you know, I, I keep thinking how British we are. This is New England. And this is the United States, a former British colony. A lot of things that we do here have their origins in, in Britain. This also came from a, a UK movement called the Building Society movement, uh, which uh, spread to the US. So it, the savings and loans are the same as building societies. Uh, but the idea is, uh, the original idea and, the, the, and also the general idea today, 
is that these are banks set up for uh, small savers in order that they can buy a house. So that, that savings and loans traditionally have made um, most of their loans in the form of home mortgages. So the idea was a lot of people can't afford to ha a house. Let's, let's all get together and pool our money, and then the, the, we'll in a building society or saving and loan association, and then we'll loan out, we'll loan out to some of us to buy the house, uh, and it will help uh, rather than all trying to do it individually. Uh, and then there's also something called credit unions. Uh, credit unions are, they, I think they came out of kind of the um, cooperative movement. There's a lot of uh, social movements that have some idealism behind them. I, I think maybe the same movement that created the Yale Cooperative Society in the late 18th century, 19th century, uh, uh, also spurred credit unions. A credit union is a kind of club of people who belong to some organization or live in one uh, town or are somehow connected, uh, which is supposed to uh, accept deposits and make loans to the members uh, for things, including home mortgages, but going broader than that into automobile loans. Well, it wouldn't have been automobile loans when these were created. I don't know, something loans, um, etc. So it's like a saving and loan association, except that credit unions are created by some entity, some club or group, and they're not uh, open to the whole public. Savings and loan associations, by the way, no longer exclusively limit themselves to mortgage lending either. They do home improvement lending and, uh, and uh, auto loans and the like as well. Okay, so I wanted to give you some idea of the uh, size of these. So I have data on the total assets of th these classes of bank in the United States uh, as of um, 2007, third quarter. That's my date. Uh, so uh, commercial banks uh, had, I'll put it down here, uh, $10,872 billion in assets. Or that's $10.8 trillion of assets uh, at the end of um, 2007. About 20 percent of that is actually foreign. Uh, we've had a lot of big uh, foreign commercial banks come in to the U.S. Uh, it's not as big as in some other countries. If you go down to Mexico, their main commercial banks are almost entirely foreign today. But in the U.S., it stands at uh, uh, well, I know the, the domestic figure of commercial banks, the assets of domestic commercial banks, is seven nine eight seven billion. So it's about eight trillion dollars. Uh, that's uh, that's domestic banks. So uh, those are the big ones. Uh, but if you look at um, uh, now, I have these two lumped together. Uh, I don't have them separately. Um, in 2007-3, they were 1868 billion. That's almost $2 trillion. So they're much smaller uh, savings banks and savings and loans than the commercial banks. 
And uh, the credit unions are even smaller, uh, 748 uh, billion dollars. So it's less than one trillion in credit unions. So when we speak of banks, it is overwhelmingly commercial banks that matter. Uh, but um, there's another way to rate these, rank these, is by numbers, uh, number of banks, and that gives you a very different look. If you look at number of organizations uh, that do this business, it comes completely reversed, and it's credit unions uh, that are the most important. Uh, and where do I have that here? Oh, yeah. Um, I don't have the latest data. This is from 1998, but there were 11,000 credit unions. That's the number of credit unions in the United States in 1998, uh, and there were only 9,000 commercial banks. That's the number of banks. Um, and of the savings institutions, there was only 1,500. Uh, it's probably going down further because a lot of these old savings banks are being, are being converted into commercial banks. Uh, so uh, you may have a false impression uh, of the importance of credit unions. You hear about credit unions a lot uh, because they're in your neighborhood and they're advertising for small depositors, so they're in your face. Uh, but uh, commercial banks are actually uh, much more important. Okay. So uh, I wanted to uh, clarify just what it is that banks do. Uh, and they're in a, the first thing to understand is that I start out by telling you the story of the goldsmith banker. And I like to tell that story because it sounds obvious, right, that if you were a goldsmith, uh, hundreds of years ago, you would have probably become a banker. It would just be the natural thing to do, right? So banks are natural, and fractional reserve banking is a natural thing to do. Hence, it exists in every country of the world. It's everywhere. Uh, and so there, it's, not, uh, uh, it's not something we can live without. There must be fundamental reasons for it. And I wanted to go over some of the fundamental reasons why we have uh, why we have banks, uh, and I've got three main reasons: they're uh, adverse selection, moral hazard, and uh, liquidity. Uh, so, uh, in other words, the banks offer solutions to all three problems: adverse selection, and I'll, I'll define these in a minute. Moral hazard in lending and liquidity. Okay, so uh, and this goes beyond the simple goldsmith banker story that I was uh, motivating initially. So what do I what do I mean by adverse selection? The adverse selection problem when you when it comes to borrowers, people who are trying to borrow money. Uh, is that if you become a lender, uh, or let's say if you, if, not talk about becoming a lender, suppose you are interested in investing in debt of companies, uh, then uh, you as an investor sub are, are, are subject to the problem that you might end up with the worst stuff if you don't watch out. 
suppose you, you, know, you, you are a naive investor and you say, okay, I'm going to invest in companies, uh, paper, which is uh, their promises to pay, their IOUs. But the problem is, I being a, na a naive investor could get stuck with the bad stuff. The people who are in the know know who's trustworthy uh, as, a, as a borrower and who has a good prospect of paying it back. But if I go in there ignorantly, uh, I'm going to get stuck with the worst stuff. That's adverse selection. That you worry that uh, someone is going to, uh, is not going to get, you can't judge it well yourself. And so the fact, the fa your ability, inability to judge the ability of a company to pay is, is very, uh, uh, makes it very difficult for you to invest. Uh, so, uh, the, um, this leads us to uh, uh, what's called relationship banking, or it's really all banking is relationship banking, but the core of banking is relationship banking. Banks are institutions that exist within the community, and they are, live among the business people in the community and have an ongoing relationship with them. In fact, that is essential to banking, and uh, uh, and and it's it's kind of part of the you might almost call it the de definition of a bank. Uh, bankers play golf a lot. <laughs> That's because uh, business people like to play golf, and you have to keep your finger on the pulse of the community. Playing golf with the local businessmen is a very good thing to do if you're a banker, right? Because you'll hear the gossip. It'll all be off the cuff. Things that no one would want to tell you because they, they wouldn't want to be on record of having called you up and told you that such and such a company is in trouble, that they're doing something that I think is, looks a little funny to me. Uh, you can't call up the banker and say that. But if you're playing golf, it comes out perfectly naturally, right? Or you, you join the Yale Club in New York, <laughs> something like that, and you sit around and talk with people. Uh, I remember reading a, uh, I, I like to browse among old books. I was reading a 19th century book about how to be a banker, and the book stressed that you've just got to be available. You know, you're sitting there behind your glass window, and someone comes in and wants to chat. You should be available. Uh, that's, that's what banking is. You're kind of in this, but you're in a different thing. You're not a regular businessman running a business, you're a lender to the businesses. But as a result, people invest in banks. Stock, the stock of banks, because they understand that these people have a long-term relationship with business, and they are immune from the adverse selection. You can't stick your bad paper to the, to the banker who knows everybody in the town. You know, I mean, he'll figure it out, and, and that's the, um, and so that's the problem that's solved by uh, bankers. The other thing is moral hazard. Uh, and this is that companies, once they borrow money from anybody, a bank or anyone else, they have an obligation which is fixed in dollar terms, right? Uh, they have an incentive to take big risks because, um, uh, think of it this way, um, suppose you're a company that has just borrowed a million dollars, okay, and now hey, it's looking a little bit uh, precarious here that uh, our business might go under. So you have an incentive 
to say, because you're the equity holder, you have an incentive to say, hey, why don't I just take some big gamble here and not tell anybody. I'll just take the remaining money and I'll put it in some lottery bet. Uh, and you know, one in three chance, I'll have three million dollars. And if it fails, hey, those guys will lose out because you know, I'm, I'm going to lose anyway. I might as well. If I don't do anything, I'm going to lose anyway. I'm just going to be paying back my debts and go bankrupt. So I'll take a big gamble, and then at least I have a one in three chance of making money. You see that? Isn't that a compelling argument? <laughs> That's what you want to do. Um, and so uh, businesses, of course, can't actually invest in the lottery. That would be contrary to the terms of their loan. But they can do similar things. They can do big gamble type business ventures. Okay. Uh, and so again, that is a problem that lenders have. That the that the uh, the company that's borrowing the money has this unfortunate incentive, at least at certain times, to take excessive risks because the debtors will end up bearing the losses. And not the debt, the creditors who lent the money will end up uh, will end up bearing the losses. So this is another reason why we want re relationship banking. It's exactly what you find out about when you're playing golf with the other bankers. Uh, and so you're on the phone with this guy all the time, and uh, you sniff something out, uh, you can uh, maybe stop it. And so you're watching over the company. Um, okay, and, and the third thing uh, is, um, is liquidity. And that is, uh, maybe this is, goes back to the, I didn't mention it, but it would apply to the old Goldsmith banker story as well. Liquidity is that banks lend long uh, 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 and borrow short. By that mean short term, I mean. Uh, most of the people who want to borrow money from the banks, let's talk about businesses who are accepting business loans, they don't want to pay back the money tomorrow. If, if you're in borrowing money for a business, you might want to open a store and you want to stock your merchandise. Uh, and you know, your business won't prosper for a couple of years. Uh, or you might be building a factory, and you can't pay the money back right away. You need the, you need the loan for years. But uh, investors don't want to tie up their money for years. So what banks offer uh, uh, is liquidity, uh, the ability to borrow short, even though the loans that are made are long term. And how do banks do it? They do it with fractional reserves. They trust to the fact that uh, that the bank uh, um, that the depositors won't all come on the same day. Just like a goldsmith banker, he leaves only enough gold in the safe to cover the kind of withdrawals that are normally accepted. And so, uh, in that case, the the bank can pay interest to depositors. And even though the the deposits are short term, and the depositor can get the money at any time. The depositor is earning interest of a level that can only be made using uh, on long-term loans. People can't pay, um, can't pay, they can't pay a high interest if they don't have it as a long-term loan. Now, incidentally, often banks' loans to corporations are short-term, technically. So the, the corporation, it's, it, the bank is both lending short and borrowing short, uh, but. In fact, they are in practice long term, because 
you have a relationship with your banker, okay? And you play golf with your banker. And your banker understands that you have a business. He's your friend, let's hope. Your banker understands that your business uh, can't pay the money back and uh, that the bank has a reputation in the community of helping business people. Uh, and so they won't ask for the money. Even though it's a short-term loan that they made to you, the bank won't ask for it back right away. Uh, unless you start misbehaving. And so, see, it becomes an arm-twisting thing. Because of this risk of moral hazard, the bank has a threat to take the money back. And they are going to find out quickly if you as a company are behaving wrong. And so, uh, so, so it works out under normal circumstances very well. So, and, and it goes beyond all of these. The companies get advice from the banker as well. The banker knows everybody in the community, and when you're playing golf with the banker, it may go beyond just uh, collecting information. The banker might have positive suggestions. Uh, you know, you should really do business with so and so, uh, who has a, a natural matchup with you. Uh, and so, bankers require a lot of uh, uh, prestige and status in their communities, uh, and so this is happening all over. All over the world. Uh, now, banking as a—it's uh, important to know that banking is bigger uh, in developing countries, in, in LD, I'll say LDCs, less developed countries than in developed countries, uh, and that is—it tends to be bigger, and that is because less developed countries have less developed securities regulation and laws and traditions. So that uh, there it, it often has to be that the only way you can raise money for a business is through a bank. In the more advanced countries, there is more um, trust in the securities markets, and so uh, we don't need this relationship banking as much. Um, but if it, still, it still becomes very important. Uh, to um, uh, a lot of things. Now, uh, I wanted to mention in this context, uh, because I'm emphasizing how uh, banks solve, help solve the adverse selection and moral hazard problem, I wanted to mention uh, briefly here also the rating agencies, which uh, have some, fulfill some of these functions, and I don't have a, a separate lecture on these. Uh, the first rating agency uh, in the world uh, was created by Mr. John Moody in the U.S. in 1909. Uh, and he was dealing also with the moral hazard and adverse selection problem. But he had a, a neat idea, uh, and that was uh, to give letter grades <laughs> to securities. That uh, represented creditworthiness. So the highest grade was AAA, uh, and that was the best grade you could get. There's no A pluses. It sounds a little bit like college, but not quite. And then if you weren't quite AAA, you were AA, uh, and if you weren't quite AA, you were A, uh, and then you could become BA, uh, uh, all the way down, I guess, to C. Or beyond that, then you're failing. It's just almost like college grades. <laughs> uh, 
And the idea was that the, uh, so he set up Moody's uh, rating agency, and, and the job of Moody's was to give letter grades to securities. Uh, and uh, it was a little bit like a bank, uh, but it was different because he didn't actually make the loans. Um, there was another, it was Henry Poor, uh, set up Poor's in 1916 on a similar model. And they later merged with Standard Statistics to become um, Standard & Poor's, S&P. And those are the two biggest rating agencies in the U.S. today. And they're I extremely powerful organizations uh, because they uh, – and uh, the Standard & Poor's also does letter grades. Uh, slightly different uh, system, but almost the same. And then there's Fitch is the third, uh, which is smaller than these two. Um, so this is an interesting question. Do they solve the moral hazard and adverse selection problem as well as banks do? Uh, well, they're similar to banks, and they have a relationship with the uh, investment community, and they, uh, they try to stay on top of everything that's happening. Uh, and uh, they've become forces of nature in the U.S. economy in the sense that uh, people accept these letter grades with uh, great authority. Uh, and uh, recently, however, th there is a bit of a scandal regarding these rating agencies because uh, they gave AAA ratings to some subprime securities. <laughs> In other words, securities that were themselves uh, backed by subprime loans. And so this is the subprime scandal showing up. Uh, and the, the question is, uh, how can these rating agencies uh, manage the current distrust that's developed? Because they uh, – one important thing – John Moody wrote, was a very uh, crusty, um, strong-willed man uh, who wrote a couple of books. Uh, and in these books, he talked about his moral commitment to honest rating of, of securities. Uh, and people trusted him, and they trusted his organization. Well, they still do massively, although a little bit less than they used to. Uh, and uh, but something uh, Moody's died in the 19 John Moody died in the 1950s, but after he died, uh, Moody's and Standard and Poor did something that Moody would not have approved of is they started accepting fees from the people they rate. Uh, and so some people think that if you – you shouldn't do that. If you're – like a professor shouldn't be paid by the students. At least not directly. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> you're paying me indirectly. But, you know, I shouldn't be collecting money from you and then awarding grades. That wouldn't be right. Uh, but that's what has started to happen. So some people think that the rating agencies have allowed a kind of moral hazard uh, uh, to creep into their organization. So they have been working on improving their methods, and they're trying to uh, create um, divisions within their organizations that prevent uh, moral hazard from happening. I think that going forward, uh, both the rating agencies and the banks will be uh, very important uh, in our society. And so uh, the, the history of financial innovation is always that the uh, 
organizations adapt to crises, and the subprime crisis is harming both the banking sector and the rating agencies at the present time because it's a situation of stress that, that stresses their, uh, their organizations. And, uh, uh, but I think that it will be a time of uh, correction. Um, I mentioned fractional reserves. Uh, and I, I, um, uh, the fact that banks hold only a part of their uh, liabilities as reserves, like the Goldsmith banker only holding part of the gold, uh, is a problem. The question is, how much reserves should a bank hold? Uh, and bank failures occur when there's not enough gold in the vault. And then people start asking for the gold, and the Goldsmith banker doesn't have it to give out. The Basel Accord was in uh, 1988, and you can read about this in detail in um, Fabozzi et al., uh, was an international convention that uh, uh, gave what they called risk-based capital requirements uh, and recommended risk-based capital requirements. Uh, to bank regulators around the world. What we have is a s we have a problem that, that there can be a systemic problem to fractional reserve banking if there's ever a run on the banking system. If, if banks get in trouble and they can't pay out, if one bank gets in trouble and can't pay out on its uh, deposits, then that can bring the whole system down. Because it can cause a panic among investors, uh, among depositors in banks, and create a run on a bank. And this has happened so many times in history that governments around the world now regulate banks and tell them that they have to hold a minimum amount of reserves uh, and have a, a, a minimum amount of capital. Capital is the uh, money that they have to pay out should there be a. Uh, um, or, or it's assets that they can quickly liquefy and pay out. If should there be a run on the bank. So Basel 1988 was an effort to make sophisticated risk management requirements for banks uh, that, that relied on more uh, modern, as of 1988, uh, financial theory. So, um, and the, the, the U.S. adopted the Basel uh, uh, requirements in 1989, and they're still in force today. So the, um, the, the, the agreement, but incidentally, this was an international convention. No country had to follow these risks, but generally countries have followed them because they want to be part of the international community and you want to use the standards that were recommended. So it's a little bit like the NAIC, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, uh, recommends laws to the local insurance regulators in the 50 United States. This is a supranational version of this. This is in Switzerland. Basel is a city in Switzerland where the Bank for International Settlements is. It's an international effort to recommend regulations for countries all over the world. Uh, and so in the Basel I, there were Tier 1 capital requirements. Uh, and uh, what did I say? They defined Tier 1 capital uh, as uh, capital in a certain form. It's stockholders' equity plus preferred stock. And then there's tier two capital, 
Uh, and then they have a formula. Uh, this is defined in Favosi. They have a formula that defines how much tier one and tier two capital a bank has to hold. Uh, and the, the amount um, depends on uh, the risk class of their investments. So they, they define four credit risk categories, uh, and uh, uh, they, they, def uh, they define uh, a formula involving the amount of assets in each of the categories. Uh, and then there's a formula that dictates how much tier one capital and how much tier two capital they have to hold. This system has worked <coughs> well uh, for 20 years now, uh, but it is being superseded by another Basel convention, uh, Basel II, which has been going on for some years now. So this is Basel I that I just was telling you about. And now um, they've come up with a new uh, version, uh, Basel II. Uh, and Basel II is more sophisticated. It recognizes that, um, uh, that the, the, um, the risks that a bank faces are very complex uh, and that they are not summarized by just the classes uh, of uh, borrowers that were defined in Basel I. Uh, and it took them years. I won't get into details on Basel II, but it, w it, uh, it uh, won't get into uh, it, it, it. It tries to deal more sophisticatedly with uh, uh, the complexity that we have in modern finance when there's a lot of unusual derivative securities that have um, uh, un difficult to understand properties. And I think they may have to have a Basel III before too long because everything gets more and more complex in the world. To some extent, the subprime crisis is a, f uh, is a failure uh, of Basel II, which is not even fully born yet. Uh, it won't uh, come in fully in force in the U.S. until 2009. It's already uh, starting to have its impact. It's in other countries, it, uh, it's already been, been adopted. Uh, so uh, the uh, uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about problems, and then uh, I'll conclude. I have various. There have been lots of banking problems in the world. Uh, and uh, uh, what should I? Uh, let me just m mention some. Uh, uh, I don't know what order I should go in here. Uh, uh, let me talk a little bit historically. The uh, uh, SNL crisis in the United States, 1980s. What happened there? Savings and loan associations. We're making bad loans, uh, especially in Texas, but in lots of other states as well. Uh, and uh, the um, uh, this is uh, when Ronald Reagan was president. Reagan was a big believer in free markets. Uh, we had a, a law that actually passed. Uh, it's called the Depository Institutions Deregulation and Monetary Control Act. Of 1980, it's actually before Reagan. That's <laughs> Depository Institutions Deregulation and Monetary Control Act. What that did is it eliminated um, uh, ceilings on interest rates on deposits. It allowed banks to 
pay high interest rates. It used to be that the government didn't let banks pay more than a certain amount on their deposits, uh, and that helped protect banks because then they, they, didn't, uh, they didn't have to compete uh, to pay high interest rates and then be incentivized to make risky loans to try to make money uh, with those high interest rates. Once they freed up interest rates, interest rates on deposits started soaring and banks started taking greater risks, particularly savings and loans. Now, the government insures deposits, as you know, through the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and for savings and loans, they had an organization called the FSLIC, which is now defunct uh, because of this crisis, Federal Savings and Loan Insurance Corporation, and it was insuring deposits of savings and loans. Uh, they should have been watching under Reagan because if you let them pay high interest rates, you better watch out that they don't make risky loans if you're insuring them. But the FSLIC uh, wasn't uh, on, it was sleeping at the switch. Uh, and so it allowed banks in the United States, uh, it was pr primarily savings and loans who did this, to make bad loans. Uh, and they were playing this moral hazard game. The moral hazard crept in and, uh, because they said, hey, we can borrow. At a high rate, let's make some risky loans, and if it succeeds, we'll make money. If the thing blows up, well, then the government will pay. And so they had an, a, an unfortunate incentive to make bad loans. Um, this thing collapsed in the 1980s, uh, and it cost the U.S. government, through the FSLIC, about $150 billion. Uh, it also, the collapse of this was part of the reason for a general economic collapse. We saw a collapse in real estate prices after 1990 and a recession in 1991. So it was the big story uh, of, um, of the uh, 1980s. Uh, I, I'm just going to mention some other stories that are uh, important just to illustrate the fragility of the banking system. The Mexican crisis uh, under President Salinas. Um, what happened was Salinas was a Harvard-educated economist, uh, came in to modernize Mexico, uh, and he wanted to privatize things. Uh, and so he privatized a lot of the banks. Uh, and then the banks went on a lending spree uh, and, uh, in Mexico. Uh, and uh, loans, um, uh, bank loans rose from 10% of GDP, of Mexican GDP, in 1988 uh, uh, to 40% by 1994. That's a huge increase in bank loans in Mexico. What was happening? It was again. Something was amiss. That you, did, you had the government deregulating and not watching. Uh, a lot of these people in the Mexican banks thought, well, surely there'll be a bailout if something bad happens. The government will pay for it. So let's go, let's run with it. Uh, and they ran with a lot of loans that turned out bad. As a result, uh, there was a huge banking crisis. And I mentioned before that Mexico doesn't have <laughs> much in the way of domestic banks anymore. They basically all failed and were taken over by foreign banks after the Mexican crisis. So that's a sign of how things 
can go uh, amiss. Um, the Asian crisis in 1997, 1998. Uh, it's 97-98. Uh, uh, it actually um, is a complex phenomenon, not involving only banks, but um, uh, there, there was a, a in the in the mid 1990s, Korea, uh, Taiwan, um, Thailand, Philippines, other countries were receiving a lot of international capital uh, and uh, from international banks, and uh, there was a sudden change of heart, and people wanted to withdraw their foreign investors wanted to in withdraw their money, uh, and once it once the rumor got started that Asia was in trouble, these people started withdrawing their money faster and faster, and it caused failures of, of domestic banks in, um, in these countries. Uh, there's also the Argentine crisis uh, of um, 2000, 2002. Uh, once again, it's I won't get into all the details of this, uh, but um, it, it ended up with a, a run on the Argentine banks, and uh, uh, again, there was a loss of confidence in the time of an uh, of a um, economic crisis, uh, and people wanted to withdraw their money from the banks, uh, and the government uh, was panicked because the banks didn't have enough money to give it to them, and so the government shut down the bank accounts, uh, and it led to uh, rioting in the streets. People were very upset that they had left their money in the bank, and the government was just saying, "You can't have it," um, and um, it, it caused a huge economic crisis as well. The unemployment rate rose to 18 percent. Uh, there was uh, five changes of government in uh, Argentina in a short time. Uh, fortunately, Argentina has uh, survived this crisis pretty well, but. Uh, it's coming back rapidly, but there was a severe crisis, uh, and so that again highlights the importance of having uh, good bank regulation. Now, finally, I wanted to talk about the current situation in the, what's called the subprime crisis, um, and let me talk about the U.S. first. Uh, in the U.S., now I'm talking about just the last few years, and and something that's continuing today. And also, it's international as well. Uh, there developed in the U.S. in recent years something called the shadow banking system. Uh, <coughs> and these are organizations that act like banks but are not called banks uh, because they uh, are not technically a bank, so they escape regulation. Typically, they issue, instead of deposits, something called ABS, asset-backed securities. Uh, uh, well, asset-backed securities, particularly commercial paper, which are short-term obligations of the organization. Uh, and they invest in, uh, in something long-term. Notably, subprime loans. Uh, 
And so they're operating like banks, but they're not regulated as banks. So they, Basel II doesn't apply to them, and so they can do what they want. Uh, and unfortunately, what we've seen recently is a kind of a bank run on the, uh, on the asset-backed asset commercial paper. Banks have been creating something called structured investment vehicles uh, in recent years. And what these are, are uh, they're like companies, but they typically don't have any employees. SIV. An SIV is a, uh, is a company of a sort that invests in assets and may issue something like asset-backed commercial paper. Uh, but it's not a real company because it only exists as an organization sponsored by some bank. And so the bank has a sieve on its, uh, on its books, but the sieve is not part of the bank, so it's not subject to the bank capital requirements. Uh, and, uh, but, the, but then you, know, you might say, well, who would buy the paper of a sieve? Well, the only people who would buy it are people who trust the, the bank that supports it. And so, in effect, the bank is promising to bail out the sieve if it should get in trouble. Uh, and so it really is, it really ought to be on the bank's balance sheet, and it ought to be regulated by the bank regulators, but there was a failure to do that. Uh, and so that is the, um, the problem that we are in currently. Uh, so I wanted to talk about some very recent problems uh, to illustrate that it's always a challenge to keep banks. Banks are extremely useful uh, entities, but there's sort of a fundamental flaw that has to be constantly dealt with, namely the tendency of them to fail when they're lending long and borrowing short. And so there's always a risk that investors will suddenly want their money bank back. So um, I wanted to just talk about some recent examples. Northern Rock, which was a building society in the United Kingdom, had a, uh, a sudden bank run uh, in September 2007. What was happening? Northern Rock was a British building society that was investing in subprime paper in the U.S. And so uh, it was having trouble, and the word got out that it was having trouble, and the rumor started spreading in the U.K. Northern Rock is going to fail. And so people started rushing to pull all their money out of Northern Rock in September of 2007. This was the first bank run in the UK since 1866. Uh, this was a tremendous embarrassment to the Bank of England. Uh, and Mervyn King was uh, a very good governor of the Bank of England, but this apparently took him by surprise. Uh, they thought bank runs were a thing of the past. The, in fact, the United Kingdom has been an international model for preventing of bank runs because the Bank of England would always lend to a bank that was in trouble in order to keep them out uh, of the problem. And so the U.S. Federal Reserve System was really a copy of the Bank of England, thinking that, well, the Bank of England managed to prevent bank runs for all these years. Let's create the Fed, uh, which we'll talk about again later. Um, and so they thought they had the system uh, solved. Uh, but then they had a bank run last year. Uh, and so you talk to these people who were standing in front of the bank. The first question you'd ask them, aren't deposits insured in the UK like they are in the US? 
Well, sure enough, they were. The UK had copied the US idea. I guess they copied. I don't know where the original, I think it's probably is it UK copying the US in this case. But they didn't copy it well enough because they had a limit on the insurance of 3,000 pounds uh, for full insurance. Uh, and then they had 90% of the deposits up to uh, 75,000. Okay, and so you go out to these people who are lining up in front of the bank and ask them, isn't there deposit insurance? And they knew perfectly well. They said, yes, but only up to 3,000 pounds. I don't want to lose 10% of my money. I've got 50,000 pounds in the bank. So it, it, it was kind of a bad design for deposit insurance. So they fixed it. But you know, the, still, Northern Rock is in such trouble that in February of 08, that's last month, the uh, British government nationalized Northern Rock. It's in a terrible mess. This puts the British government in an embarrassing situation of owning a uh, failing uh, mortgage lender. Uh, and so they've got to now be the government collecting on all these mortgages. Uh, it's a mess. Uh, but uh, it shows that little details about how the deposit insurance run are important. Uh, I wanted to talk about Germany. Uh, in uh, August, or actually it was a little bit earlier, when was it? Um, um, July, there's a bank in Germany called IKB Deutsche Industrie. <laughs> this is hard to write. Three bank, that's one word, AG, uh, that uh, invested heavily in U.S. subprime paper. Okay? And, the, f and the, the value of the paper collapsed and the bank became insolvent. Uh, it was doing it through a sieve on its, uh, called the Rhineland. Investment vehicle. So you know these—it's um, not just the U.S. This thing is a heavily international problem. So this was a German bank doing exactly the same thing, uh, and it—it uh, uh, it was uh, became insolvent, and the German government had to come to its rescue. It turns out that 38 percent of this bank was owned by the German government, and so it was kind of their problem, right? They weren't watching what was going on adequately, and so there was a bailout. Uh, and the bailout, uh, I don't have the exact number here. It was a huge number of euros. Uh, and so it, it, it kind of was a wake-up call in Germany because the, they were watching with amusement the subprime crisis in the United States. And here it was causing losses to the German government. I think it was in tens of billions of euros. It was huge. Uh, this wasn't the only one. There was another German bank called Zachsen, S A C H S E N L B, which uh, failed at the same time. I guess the two together, I think it was 26 billion euro. <coughs> um, the two. This Zachsen LB and IKB was. A bailout of 26 billion euro, uh, and that's a huge scandal in Europe, which is still unfolding, and it derives from the U.S. subprime crisis. So what was happening is these banks were not being watched 
uh, carefully enough. Their, their capital requirements were not enough for the kind of assets they were, um, they were investing. Now, part of the problem is that the, the rating agencies were rating their securities that they were investing in as AAA in many cases. So there was a big goof up. The rating agencies weren't, weren't cutting the ratings as they should. And these European banks were just kind of naively trusting. Uh, and it just didn't get figured out. Now, it hit France, too. BNP Paribas is a major French bank, uh, and it had um, uh, a couple of uh, uh, well, several funds, Parvest Dynamic, BNP uh, uh, Paribas ABS Eurobor, and BNP Paribas ABS Ionia. Uh, and uh, these things collapsed, and I, I believe the uh, the three funds lost. Uh, this is right. I have down two trillion uh, euros. I, I have to check that. That sounds high, but it wasn't. The, the point it was it was the same scandal that we saw in the U.S., U.K., Germany, and now France, and it was the same source. It was the U.S. housing crisis that was causing a contagion around the world. Uh, from one country to another, because the banks in the countries had invested in risky securities that th they hadn't taken proper account of the risk, and they didn't have enough reserves. The same thing affected U.S. banks uh, uh, as well. Uh, in um, it was Bear Stearns, uh, Whose headquarters is right next to Grand Central Station? If you go into New York, uh, and they had a couple of um, uh, funds. One was called High Grade. I like to write this down: High Grade uh, Structured Credit. And another one was called uh, Enhanced Leverage Fund. These names sound safe: High Grade Enhanced. But they both collapsed uh, and became a leveraged fund. They became almost worthless because they, they were investing in subprime debt, uh, and uh, uh, and the and the uh, and the, the value of the debt collapsed, and uh, so these uh, collapsed as well. Well, these are just some examples. I I think we're in a very interesting time uh, for. Banking and for the economy as a whole, what we've seen is a testing of the system. Uh, that uh, we have regulatory requirements that banks have enough capital, but uh, this regulation is challenging uh, because it's, it's being stressed right now. A lot of people uh, get co complacent during normal times and they assume that normal times will go on forever. And they can't imagine; they don't have the uh, power of imagination to think what the next crisis will be like, so it catches them by surprise. But we'll figure this all out. <coughs> and banks, as I say, are with us uh, to stay. We just have to improve our regulation and disclosure requirements so that banks can can be prevented from taking unnecessary risks. All right. So I hope you will all come to hear Redleaf on Wednesday. And I look forward to having lunch with some of you. I don't think I can get either Icon, both Icon and uh, Schwartzman uh, are, uh, are coming to give a lecture in April, but I don't think either of them will stay for lunch. So this is our only uh, luncheon event.